seconds flat. Give me up. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Mile 162 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented to you by Columbus Running Company and ColumbusRunning.com. Phil, what's good, my man? It's good to see you, Travis. It's good to be back. It Things is. are going well here. I am finally getting back to some training, getting the dog back in shape. So we're, we're looking up. Yep, I'm seeing some running on Strava. I like what I see. You're getting fit. You're back. You're healthy again after this. Oh my gosh, how many months long hiatus? Oh, well, it was, uh, let's see, seven weeks of actually not running. Prior to that was probably three months of pretending that I wasn't hurt. Yeah, three months when you shouldn't have been running. That's correct. Then maybe four weeks now of gradually building back some running with some walk run stuff. And now we're getting some continuous runs and building mileage and getting the dog back out there, which he's been enjoying that. How you feeling? That's good, man. Uh, confident. Um, okay. the foot's feeling good. Still a little bit of tenderness, like at a different part of the foot, but that I think will resolve as mileage builds. It's nice to have some routine back into the day and feel like I'm starting to get back in shape. So things are good. Not ready to put something on the calendar yet, but, uh, we're getting there. That tenderness suits you, Phil. You are a tender man. <laughs> Phil, it is almost Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. My favorite holiday of the year. Oh, mine as well. I can't remember if I've asked you this before, because frankly, I try not to listen to this program. <laughs> <laughs> what are your top three favorite Thanksgiving dishes? Ooh, number one's definitely got to be the turkey, but not on Thanksgiving Day. The leftover turkey mm. on a sandwich is on point. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, mom makes this delicious, like, pineapple casserole which Ooh. sounds really healthy but <laughs> mixed with butter covered with cheddar cheese and ritz crackers is delightful so tastes like dessert counts as a vegetable in my book i like uh, it and then number three my wife does these green bean bundles that are like wrapped in bacon and then covered in this like worcestershire syrup Let's say mm. that three times. Yeah. Marinates overnight and then cooks where the bacon's nice and crisp. So you have these like bacon green bean bites. Oh, they are. I'm getting excited, man. Oh, that Jen. What a woman. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, I'll go turkey number one as well. I Some mm-hmm. people aren't, aren't big on the bird, but I, I think it's the centerpiece for a reason. I don't understand why we don't eat it more frequently. Yes. I, how, I, how do you like it cooked? Well, I tend to go fried I, I tend to put it in, in the deep fryer. I think that keeps it nice and moist. I'm not super picky, though. I got to tell you, as long as you don't overdo it, yeah. regardless of how you cook it, it's pretty good. Number two, since you went with some kind of family stuff there, number two, I'll go uh, off the traditional Thanksgiving menu. As you know, Phil, but the rest of the listeners might not be familiar, my mom's family is Middle Eastern descent from Syria. Mm-hmm. 
And I like the Syrian food. We always bring that out with the Thanksgiving food. I was actually baking Ooh. some today, Phil. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, but my favorite there are uh, what are called sfihas, which are uh, a browned lamb or ground beef with pine nuts, allspice, mm-hmm. some onions wrapped in a dough and baked. But we also will do them uh, as spinach pies too, with some spinach, mm-hmm. raisin, pine nuts. Oh, mm. That's good stuff. Number three, I'll go with a dessert that's just actually a dessert. I'm not going to sugarcoat <laughs> this as saying it's a vegetable. I'm going straight to the pies. Ooh, which uh, one? I, you know, we'll probably have a cherry on the table because I can do cherry anytime. But for a more traditional seasonal pie, I'll add the apple maybe okay. with a, a Dutch crumb topping. Warm Ooh. that up. Serve it uh-huh. with some homemade ice cream. Mommy, mommy. Uh, have it for breakfast the next day as well. Oh, yeah. that's That works <laughs> at any meal. Uh-huh. And then I would take a pecan pie over a pumpkin pie. I am not a pumpkin pie guy. I don't mind a pumpkin roll, but I'm not big mm-hmm. on the pumpkin pie. I, and I'll, the, the hate meal will come in, but I just, I don't enjoy it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. The, the pumpkin pie is, I'm agnostic. It, it's mm. not bad, but I I could leave it, but the pecan pie, especially we get one that's made with like some chocolate in there as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're talking. Hey, as an aside, quick update on the Kringle of the month club. I've gotten some questions on this. We haven't touched on this since like the beginning of the year, the gift that keeps on giving the Kringle of the month Uh club. uh, Since I mentioned the cherry pie, it made me think of it. The cherry Kringle has far and away been the heavy hitter. That's been the number Mm -hmm. one fan favorite. Uh, There was was a nice strawberry in there a while back too. Yeah. I would say if you're joining the club, load up heavy next year on the cherry Kringles. And if you want to include your favorite podcast hosts in there, feel free to uh, send that out to the show. That's the Kringle of the Month Club. We should get on (laughs) Patreon and just ask for Kringles. That's right. Hey, Phil, we've had some really tremendous listener questions recently on training topics, and I thought it'd be nice to dive into a few of them a little deeper here tonight. So uh, you want to go ahead with the the first one and uh, we'll yeah. fire away with our thoughts. We appreciate everyone. We are, we are quite thankful for all the communication from folks. So go ahead and hit it, Phil. It's been fun to get these, and, and they're really thoughtful questions. You know, we haven't discuss this ahead of time. So I'm really kind of curious to hear your take. Uh, But the first question, I would like to hear your opinion on the pros and cons of running multiple small workouts spread throughout a week in replace of one big workout. For example, instead of eight miles of threshold or half marathon work on a Wednesday, maybe it's a four mile workout on both Wednesday and Friday. Could this potentially lead to increased running economy because you're running at faster speeds more frequently without breaking down? Great question. It's couched as running multiple small workouts rather than one big workout. I don't know if I would use those terms. I do see eight miles of threshold or half marathon work as a big workout, but I don't know if we're necessarily replacing it with a bunch of really small workouts. So perhaps it's four and four, like was presented by the listener, or maybe you could actually get more total volume this way as well. If you did like a couple five miles, like eight by a K, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you could actually get more total volume. Simple answer. Yes. I like this. Uh, before we dig deeper into how to construct that, uh, let's consider the terms again and the training parameters just to touch on this once more, because 
we had our group out at the track on Wednesday morning and I used the word threshold and it blew up the track, Phil. I thought I was going to have to dive into science lessons. I said, just listen to the Second Splat podcast. We've gone over That's this. Right. But- no, I have I have a degree in exercise physiology and I, number one, hate the term threshold and mm-hmm. number two, hardly understand exactly what folks mean when they are writing scientific papers about it and trying yeah. to explain their definition of it. But there are, let's just say dozens of definitions of threshold. Yeah, that is accurate. And it was, it, it was well-intentioned. We got some guys who were just really interested in learning more about the sport who are maybe mm-hmm. newer to the sport. So to simplify, for most runners, that term threshold, it's, it's running slightly faster than the half marathon pace. It probably falls around 15K pace for a lot of folks that listen to this program, somewhere around the one hour race pace. I'll define it this way is we're referencing what you might see in the literature as LT2 or the second lactate threshold. It's where blood lactate accumulation exceeds our ability to effectively clear the lactate or to use it as fuel. And so the next pace faster for better background, the next pace faster is probably right at your critical speed where we move into the severe domain. Or if you were to use a three zone model, it's where we've moved into that third zone. Let's step back from all that terminology for a minute and just use half marathon pace as the example our listener mentioned. If we divide that into two separate days rather than one big one, I think we can do 20 to 30 minutes of this work on each of those days, either continuous or my preference, this is again a a preference, it doesn't mean it's right, uh, would be breaking it into segments. 20 to 30 minutes of that work is a, a very beneficial stimulus. And it also stops us before the session becomes too taxing, too much like a race. We avoid the form really deteriorating or the lactate drifting too high, uh, particularly if you don't have access to lactate testing that you can't get accurate measures during your session. Plus that broken interval approach may make it more possible to increase the total volume again at this pace. So uh, 10 by three minutes, that's a session I did this morning, 10 by three minutes at this effort with a minute jog rest. That's much more palatable and, and doable for most folks than jumping to say even 25 minutes continuous. So it's five more total minutes, but it's probably a, a much more doable exercise. And then you might be able to progress that bigger chunk, six by five minutes, three by 10. Those are good examples. The listener's point about doing this more frequently without breaking down, that's less likely to get that deterioration, less likely to drift into other zones when you do these shorter chunks. But I'd offer another option. As they say on the line, get you a man who can do both, Phil. (laughs) Let's do a session at half marathon effort and another at a different part of the week at a different pace, but one that's around this threshold type effort, right? So for example, you could do a rhythm tempo or longer reps around marathon effort on the second day of the week from the slower end, or you could move to the faster end. What about shorter reps, slightly faster workout we've talked about before, 400s at 10K? with a hundred-ish jog rest, now we can really boost economy because we feel more comfortable and efficient at a faster pace. 
Plus we elicit an entirely different set of muscular and chemical adaptations. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing two of the sessions at the same pace rather than the one big one, but you might be able to tweak it a little bit and do it even better just at slightly different efforts. So yeah, to bring it full circle, it's, it's a worthwhile training pursuit because the quality will likely be higher with two sessions rather than the one super long session. And you touch on the stimulus more frequently. To me, it makes it kind of the poor man's Norwegian approach, meaning it's something more of us can handle when we have real lives and jobs and stressors and the double threshold day is just overwhelming. And so you do a couple of workouts like this rather than one huge hit midweek that might just be too intense or trying to force in three or four threshold sessions with multiple in a day like the Norwegian model. Phil, what are your thoughts? That makes sense. And really... I like where the, the listener's coming from, but we need to think about a couple of things. One is, are we doing enough within that single workout to stimulate the response that we want? Mm-hmm. So for you know somebody that's relatively low mileage, 20 minutes of half marathon tempo is probably enough to stimulate a quality response. But for somebody that's experienced that puts in a ton of mileage, that's not really challenging enough to create any significant adaptation. So by, by splitting that over two days, you know, the, the more experienced runner maybe isn't getting quite enough of a benefit, but somebody that's not running quite as many miles might, might get a little bit better response. The other is if we do a larger workout one time during the week versus doing it, you know, multiple times, are we able to recover from it enough? Mm-hmm. So like you said, that eight mile threshold workout, that's a beefy workout that might take several days to recover from and maybe just too much versus let's cut that down. Let's do four miles of threshold and then have enough gas in the tank, as it were, to do something else later in the week. Essentially, are we stimulating that response enough to, or stimulating that system enough to get a response? And are we not overdoing it to where we're having to recover from too much? Mm. And the other component is what you said with, with, you know, I love the idea of two workouts during the week, but let's work, you know, across the speed spectrum, everywhere from mile to 5k up to marathon pace. So one of those workouts might be this sustained threshold workout. Another workout might be, like you said, 400s with a 100 meter jog. So we're stimulating a couple of different metabolic responses, but then we're also stimulating a couple of different neuromuscular and mechanical responses as well to lead to more running efficiency. And and you want to use the word economy as part of that. I like that idea of splitting it up that way versus two of essentially the same workout within that week. Okay. Good point on the recovery. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's important to consider for that big beefy session, both coming out of it and making sure going into it that you're prepared for it with ample recovery beforehand. And and so that can create some challenge that it can just be too much to do all your other Mm -hmm. running around it. To your point on working the entire speed spectrum, perhaps the simple way to do this while keeping these workouts around half marathon effort, as the listener asked, would just be to tack on a few short things afterward maybe mm-hmm. some short hills, maybe some strides. That could be another approach because as we move to, we have to be careful as we move to those faster speeds with, if we're doing multiple workouts, how intense are those sessions? 
So just keep that in mind as well. I'll push back a little, Phil, while I agree with you that it has to be enough to stimulate some, some adaptation. Let's just take this as an example. It's, it's somewhat foreshadowing of a question that's going to come up here later. At 20 minutes, if you did a Monteghetti fartlek structured as a bit of like a yo-yo over under threshold, mm-hmm. in that 20 minutes for almost any level of athletes, you're going to get the stimulus. I do agree from the perspective, this is why I gave the range of 20 to 30 minutes, because up towards 30 minutes, I think as someone who's more experienced can get to that point and do it a couple times a week successfully. But I think you can hit the system at 20 minutes, as you said, especially for someone who's perhaps less developed, uh, but in certain structures for any level of athlete at 20 minutes, you could probably find some threshold type value even at that amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to number two, Phil. Okay. Hey guys, I've enjoyed the road to LA series. Listening to the training practices of the stars of the eighties is really interesting. What has been the biggest training takeaway that you will apply to your own running? First, thanks. Glad you've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun to to write and, and construct and to research. It's a blast. I'll tackle this question both from a specific session perspective as well as overall training philosophy. And Phil, you and I talked about this off air. This, this probably is going to develop into its entire episode uh, on its mm-hmm. own at some point as we near the 40th anniversary of the, the marathon. Rob D. Costella and Rod Dixon are two of my favorite athletes of all time. I would have them both in my top five or 10 runners ever that I am mm-hmm. a fan of. In re- researching their training in particular, I was struck by how frequently both touched faster paces in marathon prep. Uh, you know, Dixon is considered the speed guy at one end of the spectrum, having yep. that track background. And Deke, of all the athletes we considered, maybe is the purest marathoner uh, of any of those runners. Maybe Joan Benoit, maybe Deke. With both Deke and Dixon, they are either running fast training sessions or racing distances like 10K a lot. Mm-hmm. Staying in touch with all intensities and not falling into just racing the distance you prefer is my overarching theme. Going back to your response to the last question about touching across the spectrum. However, it's also an important place to remember, don't get caught up in doing exactly what the pros do. We don't Mm -hmm. live the lives of professional runners. Some things are great to incorporate. Others are too much. We've discussed this in the past as consider what they did in terms of time, not in terms of mileage. Mm-hmm. But I think most of these runners did more high intensity sessions and training than I could handle. I believe I, I would break down and you know, having a lot of volume, I believe helps you handle those intense sessions. Deke's weak. There's a reason he's one of the greatest of all time. And he was so successful because the amount of work he put in and that he was able to consistently do it and stay healthy for most, not all, but most of his career. But that week with where he put the quarters in, sandwiched in with that medium long that was always about 18 miles and that long that was 20 plus and they're over hills and they're relatively quick. And he's doing a hill session in there too, and a tempo like it, that's it, a lot of work. It, it's the intensity of that single quarters session probably takes it over the top in my ability to do 
any of the others in the order mm-hmm. that he did them. That's the caveat to touching those different intensities. As to a specific session, long over hills, they all did it. It doesn't have to be particularly fast. We've talked about it a lot recently, Phil. This has come up in a few different ways over recent months because we're incorporating more. We have our athletes uh, doing it consistently. It lays the foundation and develops strength for any endurance event. We've said it's doing the work so you can do the work. And it makes flatter long runs and flatter races feel so much easier when you get later into the training block. That is one that regardless of what I'm training for, you know, even just this past weekend, our group met at a place where we have a really nice bike path and did a, a good portion of the long of, across that bike path, but veered off of it to a nature reserve that's got a mile and a half, very hilly loop on the dirt. And so on the way out, we went off and did the loop. And then on the way back, we came back and we did it again. And nice. I, I thought there was something to that, getting that loop first at like six miles and then getting it again at like 15, 14, 15 miles. Now mm-hmm. I've got a little fatigue in the legs. So even those little touches of long over hills in just different ways that I haven't quite done before, and that's something I'll be doing consistently. How about you, Phil? I think the first big takeaway I had is like you said, really, there's no single way to be successful at the marathon. You know, you got guys that did mm. a ton of miler track work and that came from a track background. Then you got guys that were purely marathoners. So there's no one way. I think number two, as you said, was the variety of racing that these guys did like throughout the year. So they mm. weren't just, you know, one or two marathons and that's it. It was you know, one or two marathons, but then we're going to race this 10K and that half marathon and just getting experience racing. Mm. I think that's the one thing that a lot of those that are, mar- are focused on the marathon kind of miss is just the, and we've talked about it in previous episodes, just learning that racing mindset of learning how to focus, learning how to stay disciplined with pacing through later stages of a race when things get hard. And that's a tough skill to develop when you're only racing one or two times a year and can really be effectively developed racing 5Ks, 10Ks more frequently. I think the one big takeaway is that you know, volume does matter mm. for the most part. That you know, you look at the training that all these guys did and they were you know, very, very high mileage. That being said, just because you've had a hiccup in your training doesn't mean you can't have a successful race. Mm. For me, the biggest takeaway is to to hit those different paces, you know, not just on the marathon pace work, and to to learn more about racing by jumping in different distances. I say it every year, and I keep trying, and I'm doing it in 2024. <laughs> I've gotten better about this. I'm racing more next year. All right, there it is. Okay, question number three. This was actually from a phone conversation I had right after the New York Marathon with a former coworker and a great friend of the show, Mr. Alex Sanso. There's a shout out for you, Big Al. Ah. He's had significant cramping in the closing miles of each of his marathons, something like a half dozen of them. Although not as severe this time, it happened again at New York City beyond 20 miles. He took nutrition approximately every four miles, felt comfortable with that. So the question was, is it a fueling issue or perhaps something else? I have two hypotheses. Phil, what would you like to venture here? Mm, I'm going to make a whole lot of assessments in this question. 
none of which may be true, but that are kind of what I first go to talking with runners that, that cramping in races seems to be a big issue. The fueling itself, I think, you know, we're learning more and more that runners can handle a whole lot more volume of nutrition, particularly carbohydrates. So I think you know, that every four miles is probably a pretty decent starting point. My one question, though, is, is that something that he practiced in training? Uh, yeah. And is this something that has he had an issue with this type of cramping in his long runs and in the, the training leading up, leading up to this race? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question there. Let me interject, Phil. Um, yeah. For most of the runners out here listening to, we don't know the answer to. In this case, I, I do know he practiced it a bit more than in the past. Mm-hmm. So we got a little bit more comfortable with it. But that is a great first question for the marathoner to ask because a lot of times they just immediately simply attribute the cramping to nutrition when it might be something else. But go ahead, Phil. Secondly, would be just the overall volume of long runs that he had mm-hmm. in his training. You know, I think that. A lot of initial marathon training programs only have one or two longer runs going beyond two hours or so. Let's let's call it 20 miles. Increasing that significantly reduces the risk of cramping in those later stages. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because as you fatigue mechanically, those muscle fibers start to become much more inefficient and make you that much more susceptible to cramping at those later stages. Whereas if you've practice that and you have conditioned yourself to be out on your feet for that length of time, that can make a significant difference in reducing the the chance of cramping. Let's go with those. Let's go with those two to start. I'm curious what you have to say. And I might have a few other thoughts on top of that. Yeah. I'll build off your second one. In his case, he did have a pretty good number of 20, 22 mile runs, but I think you're on the right track. My two possible explanations, the neuromuscular fatigue from the load and or the course terrain. You're out there pounding, in this case, close to three hours for Alex, under three hours. And the lower limbs naturally break down under that stress, you said, the inefficiency of the muscle fibers. So I would evaluate if you are getting appropriate elevation change in your long runs for the demand of the course. Are you doing strength work? In particular, even if it's simply body weight or bands, doing it post long run or post longer hard session when you're fatigued so that you are working those muscles, in particular, some of those stabilizing muscles. What you start to get is like the power muscle. This is way too simplified, but the power muscle starts to have to do the task of the stabilizer when it goes and then it can't create power. Are you constructing sessions that might help enhance your durability? And so that one goes to what you said, those number of long runs. It's the consistency of long runs over time, not just one or two super big ones before a marathon. I think in Alex's case, part of the reason this got a little better is he's built that over time, not just this cycle. In addition to the cycle being consistent, he's had multiple cycles. Uh, We could use progression runs. Also, what about long sessions with quality up front where you run steady afterward on those legs that are somewhat tired? My second piece to consider here is, do you have a muscle or muscle group that lacks pliability? It's not supple. It lacks fluidity and range of motion. And that could be tightening and pulling on other areas up and down the chain as you experience fatigue. I've had this issue to some degree, in particular with my iliopsoas. And when I'm not giving it good maintenance, 
or when I haven't had my girl Betty at Thompson Massage dig into that sucker, free advertisement, Betty, there you go. I can get compounding issues through the core and hips and quads. So perhaps give that angle some evaluation as well. There, there could be an underlying muscular issue in that sense uh, that it is enhancing that breakdown later in the race leading to the cramping. Anything else you want to add, Phil? The other thing that, that I might consider as part of that would be the shoes that you're using for your long runs, particularly mm. as you know, super shoes become much more common and much more popular. Are you training in them a reasonable amount? Because that stride pattern that that's going to create is slightly different than what you might see in your, your standard trainer. And I'm assuming that Alex is probably training in uh, his race shoe a reasonable amount, but that's another factor to consider is that if you're in totally different footwear that you're not necessarily used to training, that that may be taking your leg through a slightly different pattern that you have experienced before, which, you know, over 10 miles, 15 miles may not be that big of a deal, but as we get out past 20 miles could lead to, could lead to some issues. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Phil. I like that because we know the benefits of using those shoes in the races, but mm-hmm. there's, I don't know if I'd call them negative consequences. They're just different consequences that we have just to prepare our body for. Yeah. Uh, let's do one more before we go on to a couple of uh, shoe reviews. So Phil, how often do you think it is advantageous to do a Mona fartlek? We brought it up earlier. It's one of our favorite workouts that we've talked about a lot. Uh, I Uh did one a couple weeks ago, and I just got this question yesterday. Not how often can you do it? Should it? How often is it advantageous to do it? Steve Monteghetti did it weekly. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he's okay. He won Berlin, two hundred eight (laughs) marathoner, ran fifteen fifty some, fifteen fifty low at sixty plus years old. Yeah, you know, he's all right. Mm This is one I've been thinking about as as I've been mileage, building mileage back and starting to to think about sprinkling some workouts in as well of just a good bread and butter workout that hit a lot of different paces. Daily. But- You're going to say daily. <laughs> the double Monon Australian system. That's right. Twice a day, five days a week. Three more weeks afterwards of recovery. You know, I think it's part of building fitness in my individual situation, I could see hitting this every third or fourth week over you yeah. know, a 10, 12 week cycle. You know, as you're in an actual, let's say a marathon training cycle of 12 to 16 weeks, it's probably advantageous to hit it, you know, maybe every, let's say four to six weeks or so, almost as a test piece or just a you know, just a fun workout to do. You're hitting a broad spectrum of paces, but you're also training systems that are important for all distances. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's advised, but I certainly don't think it's unreasonable to even do it, you know, weekly or every other week. But it it depends on where your where your focus is and where your priority is and what you're what you're training for and how exactly you structure the paces within it. Are you floating? Mm-hmm. Are you really surging hard? Phil, you you pretty much read my mind. Uh, I'm gonna <laughs> repeat almost what you said. Mona did it weekly. That seems like too much intensity for me. If you're on a ten or fourteen day cycle, I guess it could be your highest intensity session each cycle or every other cycle. It, it's really your A session if you're doing it every other week. And I'd be supplementing it with less intense work. 
But as you said, I like the thought of maybe every four to six weeks outside of the specific stimulus of the workout, even as much as I like the 20 minute monofartlek, I prefer the mental stimulus of varying workouts, even if multiple workouts or multiple different fartleks tackle the same or similar skills. It's just more fun to me to be doing something different. Train and race with joy. Don't be robotic. Love the sport. Consider that in your answer. How much does variety improve your experience as a runner? Okay, let's do some shoes, Phil. Let's go to the New Balance 1080 V13. It is their newest iteration of a classic trainer that in both of our opinions has been really good at times and has maybe taken a bit of a dip the past few years. So I'll open with the specs, then you can share your feedback, Phil. Uh, V13 has dropped down to a six mil offset. So that's 37 millimeters at the heel, 31 at the forefoot. At sample size nine, it weighs in at 9.3 ounces. And the cost this year is $165 American. Phil, what has been your experience in this shoe? And then I'll add Uh-oh. a couple thoughts. The 1080 is back. Baby. It's back. I, it's back. I I didn't even get version 12 just because, like myself, it ate a few too many dots over Halloween. Mm. And a few too much pecan pie and, and got a little bit heavier for my taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, version 10 and 11, I absolutely love that fresh from midsole, the slightly rockered forefoot, the mesh upper, uh, version 10 and 11 sometimes got some complaints just because of that elfin looking heel. Uh, yeah. to me, it worked really well for the, uh, the chronic Achilles stuff I have going on. Uh, but for some folks, and I kind of shared this opinion, but it, it didn't really give us solid lockdown towards the the rear part of the shoe version 13 fixed all that it's it's got a little bit more cushion than previous versions it doesn't feel mushy i would say it feels soft and bouncy it has a nice ride with that again the, a rockered forefoot so even though the heel to toe offset lost two millimeters it doesn't feel like it's a too demanding on the calf or on the Achilles, you know, that, that rockered forefoot really rolls smoothly from midfoot through toe off. And it, it's a nice, it's a nice roll through the, through the gait cycle from where the heel hits onto mid stance and over the toe. The upper is a little more plush than, mm-hmm. you know, personally I prefer, especially compared to something like the super blast or, from ASICs or a few of the super shoes that are going with these really thin uppers. Uh, that being said, I think a lot of folks will find it very comfortable and it doesn't, it doesn't make the shoe feel weighed down. It just, you put it on and it feels cozy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've found the, the toe box to be a little low when you first put it on. Yeah. Uh, to, to dive in that a little bit more, Phil, the volume of the forefoot is yep. it's a bit shallow. And I think that folks who are in between size kind of people that maybe like I typically wear 11 and a half. There's a few shoes I can wear 11 in. This would not be one of those shoes. It's going to feel shorter because you're going to feel it on top of your toes a little bit more. Yep. That being said, that's only something that I necessarily notice when I'm just standing in it. It, mm-hmm. it is not noticeable running. 
Uh, and the width of the forefoot is, I would say, accommodating. You know, other shoes like Hoka's, to me, are a little narrow in the forefoot and give me some some blistering on one of my big toes. This one, it's very comfortable through the forefoot. Uh, and the heel has a, a nice lockdown as well. Like I said, in version 10 and 11, sometimes that heel felt like it was didn't get a really good lockdown this does to me so the foot feels really secured onto that that stable platform so in all you know to me i i am very happy with this shoe i think it's a, a solid update compared to version 12 i think it's a great progression from version 12 it fits in kind of the everyday trainer to comfortable long run shoe and to me i think there are a couple of better options for a true long run shoe, but I think this one works really, really well. You know, it's a little heavier for a racing shoe necessarily, but I'd be comfortable doing workouts in it as well. Kind of the, the one shoe you might take with you on vacation kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that plush upper you referenced Phil is a product of the category that this shoe is in and what it's trying to be to your last points there and truly being a daily trainer, as opposed to the uppers that we might see on a, uh, I believe you mentioned Super, Super Blast or Nova Blast, which are more stream, mm -hmm. streamlined. Yeah, I, I'm with you. This is the best version that they've had in, in several years, to me, at, at least since version 10. I don't know that I'm going to be the Dr. Phil in it every day doing uh, my Monaghetti fartlek twice a day in this shoe, as excited as you were. Uh, <laughs> I, I very much like this shoe. But Two things can be true at once. I, I, I do have some slight concerns for me as a runner in the future. So I can both love this shoe and be a little hesitant. So a, a couple of thoughts. I did my first run on this on some softer surface dirt with a little bit of gravel. I do a decent amount of running on that type of surface uh, at the several parks nearby. I was not wow. I was not wowed there. I, I was... <laughs> I was very excited to put this shoe on and I was like, eh, meh. I think that's because on those uneven surfaces, the shoe is not inherently stable for a supinator like myself. It is riding a very thin line between being just the right amount of soft. And as you said, you called it not mushy, but it's it's very close. I'm, I'm <laughs> a little worried about that heel for the way I move in the shoe. And so that does yield some durability concerns for me, coming at that from two directions. One, in the past, this shoe has not held up as well over time as some of its competitors for me. Uh, but also just by the way I ride in the shoe, I'm, I'm a little worried if I'll wear it a bit unevenly. With that said, when I got it just on the road, fantastic. The the feel, mm -hmm. it, it's a shoe that is truly meant to be on the road or a bike path or a track, that kind of surface. It, it really shines there. You know, $165, there's a lot of that high cushion trainer in this range right now. Uh, and I think it stacks up well against the others that are out right now. Like if you were to take the kind of lead of the pack here, maybe like a Brooks Glycerin, I'd, I'd take the 1080. Yeah. I'd, I'd run in this shoe for sure. I, I, so I'm a little hesitant about a couple pieces of this just from how will it feel at 200 miles perspective. But I'm very excited about the update. It, it's a really fun shoe to run in. 
and I've done different runs in it, meaning I've used it just on a warm up or a cool down or a double or an easy day. And yeah, it's, it's felt good in all those circumstances. Yeah. To me, I, th- I think it's a, I've used this term before with a couple of different shoes, but it, it's a very democratic shoe in mm-hmm. that it's going to work really well for a lot of different people for a lot of different uses. And I think it's going to be a successful product for New Balance. I'd expect you guys will sell a, a really good number of these in the store mm-hmm. um, for a lot of different, a lot of different foot types. Yep. Well, let me go to another shoe that I think is fairly democratic as well. Maybe not quite as much as that 1080, but a shoe that will be out on 12.1. So we got a couple of weeks here from Adidas, but I've been lucky enough to get a good number of miles on this 12.1. It'll be available Columbus Running Company, columbusrunning.com. You can also get your 1080 version 13 there. That's the new Adidas Supernova Rise. Uh, They've used that Supernova name in a lot of models over the years. This version is the new daily trainer from Adidas. Uh, That's a category in which Adidas has fallen behind some of the other major brands in recent years. You know, if you want to run fast, the Pro 3 and Takumi Sen racers are very strong options. Uh, but I have to go back uh, quite a distance to think of the last Adidas training shoe that I really enjoyed. I don't know if you do you have one that you come to mind or that comes to mind for you, Phil? Man, maybe the I was in a supernova, but this would have been, gosh, probably five years ago when they first started putting boost in there, which it was a fun riding shoe. It was heavy. It was bouncy. It was durable. But to me, Adidas has been completely lacking in the daily trainer category. I mean, they, they have done a fantastic job with their, their super shoes. You know, even now with the new Boston, they've come out with seems like Mm -hmm. a quality performance trainer. But when I look into something that's, I'm just going to put a ton of miles in Adidas doesn't come to top of mind. Yeah. I would have to go back to old versions of the ultra boost circa maybe six or eight years ago. Yeah for a top shelf, really plush trainer from Adidas. And I enjoyed several editions of the old Boston as more of a lightweight trainer. Mm-hmm. That shoe, as you mentioned, has dramatically changed into a beefier, maybe more up-tempo shoe with the carbon rods. And so while I run in Adidas, it, it's fallen out of my everyday rotation. Uh, this is their attempt to re-enter that rotation. Supernova Rise has a 10 mil drop. It weighs in at 9.8 eight ounces at the sample size nine, a little heavier actually than the New Balance, even though the stack is a a touch lower at 36.26 offset uh, heel to toe. It is $140. The most exciting element here is the Dream Strike Plus Foam, which is a Piba-based foam. So it gives the shoe some pop. As I sought a comparison film, I realized the Dream Strike Plus gives this shoe the some of the feel of a beefed up version of the old Boston. It's it's also a a bit of a poor man's peg turbo. That was, I was going to question how, how, and when I think of Boston, the Boston shoe and and what I use that for, you know, the peg turbo is a much better variation of a similar style of trainer. So you're making that reference makes this interesting. Yeah. It's, it's not as light. Mm-hmm. And it's it's certainly not as soft as the ZoomX or flashy as the ZoomX, but it, it does put some spring into the everyday trainer 
category. The more tempo that I put into the shoe, the more it was able to shine. It's got a, some bounce to it. It's got a pretty smooth transition. The interesting thing here will be how people feel like this who have shifted into these really high stack, super cushioned shoes, because it's not that. It's, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the traditional everyday trainer. And when I compare it with traditional trainers at the same price point, uh, shoes like the Brooks Ghost, the Nike Pegasus, Asics Cumulus, those comparisons, my opinion of the Supernova Rise becomes even more favorable because it's just, to me, so much more versatile than a Ghost or a Cumulus yeah. and frankly, just more comfortable than a Pegasus. Very plush upper, like you mentioned with the 1080 from New Balance. And that's, I believe, where some of the weight comes from. I think that also this is a slightly heavier foam. This Piba foam they're using is, is slightly heavier. That plush upper creates a very nice step-in feel. However, when I just jogged in it, like when these came in and I jogged around the store, I thought to myself, yeah, I'll, I'll put some miles in this. We'll give it a shot. But when I actually put it through the paces and worked at my speeds, and in particular, I did a, a run that was yeah, maybe 15K in which I embedded strides as like eight by 20 seconds on, 60 seconds off. It felt really good. It had some snap to it. So it might not be a shoe of the year contender, but it's very nice. It's got a nice lockdown to it. It's got a little snap. It is a mammoth step forward for Adidas in this category. And I'll go to my basic, my most fundamental test, Phil, that I've used here before. When, I, when I'm getting ready to go out in the morning and I see it there in my lineup of shoes, am I excited to put it on? I, it gets a yes. Yeah. And so that, that is the, the best baseline endorsement that I can give of the Supernova Rise. Like with the 1080, I look forward to getting back to this shoe in a couple hundred miles and giving some thoughts then. Uh, because the, the first vibe here is one of durability, the way that that Dream Strike Plus foam rides. And I get the sense of a shoe that will uh, wear well over time. Thanks to the good people at both New Balance and Adidas who provided me pairs of those shoes to sample and review. Really good product. Next big thing that is coming down the line a couple of weeks away that I've been in is the fourth version of the Nova Blast, one of our favorite Ooh, I'm, shoes. I'm curious uh, to hear your version or your uh, your take on that. Mm -hmm. It's very good. It's very good. Uh, but we'll we'll get into that more later on. It is not the same as version three. My endorsement here is they haven't screwed it up, so that's good because version <laughs> three was good, but they did make some changes that we'll touch on more in the future after I put more miles on that shoe. Uh, before we go, last thing, I want to give huge kudos to one of our runners, a great friend of both of ours, Phil, and that's Porter Grant. Porter was at the uh, Penhody 100. It's been now almost two weeks ago. Her first 100-mile race, she was the second female. She's had a great year transitioning into ultra distances and includes a, even a, some course record performances. Uh, had a heck of a run at Penhody, so uh, Porter, super proud of you. Fantastic race. We have NCAA Cross will be complete by the time this gets out to the people. So, Phil, last thing, let's make one quick prediction sure to go wrong that by the time this gets published will already have been proven wrong what is yours 
Oh, I got multiples, man. I am excited. I am so in for NCAA Cross this year. The girl gang is going top 10. The ladies out of Furman are going to put their name on the map. And the Denman, uh, Dylan Schubert, he's going to be he's going to be top 10 as well. We're going to have a good showing, man. I'm excited. <laughs> Classic Homer picks out of the good doctor. Oh, I got I got inside information, man. I I love that. Boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. Yeah, I I would love to see them have a, a great performance. Uh, I'm going to go with Northern Arizona sweeps men's and women's team titles. Ooh, okay. So uh, I'll take them edging out Oklahoma State probably on the men's side. Mm -hmm. Well, Dave Smith said that uh, Oklahoma State only just needed to win by one earlier today. Uh, Dave Smith, some might say the lesser of the two Smiths coaching in in that duel. <laughs> that's true. Uh, he's got a, he's got a great track record. Who am I to criticize? That's that's the program with a lot of success over the years. So I'll take NAU close in that one. Uh, NC State's got some injuries on the women's side. Of one of their heavy hitters out, and I'm going to say Caitlin Tui redemption on that course in Charlottesville. I think she's built for a course like that. She's going to lead the, lead the okay. pack, but I got NAU winning both men's and women's team championships. You don't even need to watch people. We can guarantee what we just said will not happen. We will come <laughs> back to you with a recap. We will talk about our top Thanksgiving dishes after we eat them next time. Phil, looking forward to doing it again soon, my man. Have a wonderful week. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Happy Thanksgiving. All right, everybody have a good one. We will see you soon.